cliffcentral.com. So here's the story for anybody who doesn't know it. Back in July 1992, a young mother called Rachel Nickel was murdered on Wimbledon Common as a two-year-old son watched. Her death would lead to one of the most notorious miscarriages of justice in criminal history. A man called Colin Stagg was wrongly accused and imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. For three decades, the man who has squarely shouldered the blame for this catastrophic failing was the country's leading forensic psychologist and our guest, Professor Paul Britton. Britton, who has never ever spoken publicly on the matter, finally broke his silence in a series of exclusive interviews, and he doesn't hold anything back. That makes part of the 90-minute special, which is called The Murder That Changed Britain. What comes out of this story is a far more complex tale than you could possibly imagine. Uh, alongside Paul Britton, who is our guest, granting his first ever interview is retired Metro Police Commander Gary Copson, who also tells the story from his point of view. And in the most dramatic twist of all, Colin Stagg, the man who was wrongly accused, finally comes face to face with the man who put him in jail, the man he always blamed for sending him to prison as an innocent man. It's riveting stuff. And our guest is Professor Paul Britton. Professor Britton, what a pleasure to have you on and thank you for talking to us. You're very kind. So you've been seen by many as the founder of modern psychological profiling. You've worked on some extraordinarily high profile cases, including the famous Fred and Rose West case, which everybody's heard of. Maybe a good place to start would be by explaining how profiling worked all those years ago when you started. 30 years ago now, what did you do as a profiler on the Rachel Nickel case? I did exactly what I would do on any case. And by that stage, I suppose I dealt with 100 and 120 of the more serious murder cases. Uh, the Metropolitan Police came to me and asked if I would give them a psychological analysis of the person who killed Rachel Nickel. Now, at that stage, to me, it was simply, and I don't mean this horribly, simply another murder. And I used the materials that I would ordinarily use. I would use maps, I would use post-mortem materials, I would use the psychological literature, the whole array of materials. And I produced a psychological analysis that included um, a, an analysis of the internal fantasy life of the person who would have killed Rachel McKell. So in a sense, that was my work at that stage. Later, the Metropolitan Police came back to me and said, would you please help us to, we want to design an operation that would look at a particular individual in the context of this case. To do this, we're going to need undercover officers. Would you be mm -hmm. kind to design the personalities of those two officers to help us? So that's how it began for me. And really, at that stage, there wasn't, there wasn't a science, there wasn't a, a department or a division for criminal profiling. I mean, it was a fairly new, um, a, a new field. You're right. Um, at that stage, uh, I had been asked by the police to deal with a number of cases, and so had a few other people. Because of this, the Home Office came to me and asked me if I would look internationally at psychological profiling hmm. and give advice as to what we should do on the way forward. 
And I did this. And one of the key things that I advised was, firstly, you get everything checked. And secondly, you don't have just anybody walking in off the street, if you like, and saying, I'd like to do that. You keep a register. And every person who's ever offered help, you look at their work, you analyze it after the event, and you build up a database. And the database allows detectives then to say, who is best likely to help them with a particular case? And that's the way it's moved forward since then. All right. In this particular case, I mean, there were a number of shortfalls. um, And obviously, there was this huge miscarriage of justice, which people have been talking about ever since, and which has changed the lives of so many people, uh, quite apart from the the murder itself. So can you tell us what those shortfalls were and, and how they led to these miscarriages of justice? Yes, it's it's a sensitive issue, and I don't think the sensitivity has ever gone away, even to this day. In my advice, I had to explain to the police that there were two other streams of cases that were committed, in my opinion, by the same person. There was what we call the green chain rapes, where a number of women had been sexually assaulted and raped by this particular person, and later... Two people, a mother and her tiny daughter, had been slaughtered, and I mean slaughtered, by a killer. And my view was that these and the Rachel and the Cal killing were all the work of the same person. And at that stage, the police weren't willing to accept that and robustly and strongly took a different view. I was a member of a team, so I have to go with that and worked with it. Tragically... It turns out later that I was right, that it was the same person who was responsible for all these offences. And if only at the beginning, as I first suggested, (laughs) people had behaved in a particular way. When we looked at the green chain rapes, it's a straightforward serial multiple rapist, but one that had terrible risk involved beyond rape. It was going to go to Mm. murder. And I explained where you would find this person, how you would locate him, what he would look like, where he would already be in the database. And unfortunately, folks didn't respond to that. Later. So, sorry. Sorry. So, so in some ways, this, I mean, this is very, this is bittersweet for you because while you are vindicated in your original suggestions to them and your ideas of what kind of person they were looking for, um, Ultimately, it also leads to a guy being sent to jail, the wrong guy. And, and, and that can obviously have, you know, a, a much more miserable consequence for him, but also for you, because you think, well, if only they'd listened to me then. For all these years, I have been a member, at least I thought I was, a member of a particular team. At the mm. time, I prepared a statement that would deal with everything from my point of view. The police asked me not to do anything, not to say anything, to leave all of the public um, utterances, the public reporting to them. And I waited and I waited and nothing happened. And we reached a point where this particular case or part of it was turned into fiction. And so material was being put out that, Hmm. that, that created people that were never in the case, used real names use completely fictional, dramatic notions that never happened. And in this, a key thing is they portrayed both the 
police officer who really was a brave, noble lady who did as she was instructed by her commanders. They portrayed her as a flaky young woman, and she never was like that. And also they portrayed Mr. Stagg in really a very deleterious way, and he really wasn't like that. So I suppose that was the final spur that made me think, now's the time. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there are several miscarriages of justice, and you've just outlined a few that went beyond the, the legal process. And the media is always looking to put someone in the position of villain and someone in the position of saint. And it's, it's just not that simple. Right, Professor? No, it's not that simple. It never is. I mean, there, even today, there are still questions that I haven't had answered. And I would love to know not just because I would love to know, but because I think it's important to investigative principles, the answers mm. to some questions. You'll remember that Mr. Stagg was eventually charged because of certain descriptive materials that he gave to the police during interview. And they, right. apparently, it was said, could only have come from someone who'd been there at the scene of the crime at the time. That was the, the Crown's view. Mr. Stagg said that wasn't the case. And, of course, the court agreed with him. But I discussed with Mr. Stagg a key issue here, which is how did he know these different materials? Hmm. He could only either have been there, and he wasn't. He could have been told, he says that he wasn't. He might have been shown inadvertently pictures. He didn't think so. And yet, at the same time, this poor man was able to produce very clear descriptions of what happened in this horrible crime to this young woman. And the question that comes to me and has always sat with me, well, how did he know that? And he himself doesn't really seem to know that now. So there's even more to unpack. I mean, this is really oh, yeah. just opening a, a can of worms, in, in, in effect. What was that first meeting with Colin Stagg like? Because I can't imagine it was easy for either of you. Much easier than you might imagine. Um, and it, it, it wasn't easy, but much easier than you might imagine. Now, if I had been in his chair over all of these years, I would have felt pretty badly towards Paul Britton. As it happened, by this stage, he processed a lot of materials. And I think he was coming to understand things slightly differently. When we met... I met a young man, well, not such a young man now, but a man who was dignified, but who, above all things, wanted to know what had really happened. And as I explained to him how it had happened from my point of view, that fitted with what he knew. And he and I, as we talked through it, and he asked me questions and I asked him questions, at the end of it, we were able to shake hands and, if need be, make arrange for further meetings off camera to see where I might help him with other matters. It's incredible. I mean, it really is. It lives up to the title, The Murder That Changed Britain, doesn't it? I think it does. And I think that just as a matter of interest, the Britain they're talking about isn't me, although it did have changing effects. It's spelt differently. It's <laughs> Britain, the, the country. <laughs> no, you're talking about the entire country. Yes. Uh, what about, tell me, tell me about Gary Coffson. Um, because, you know, again, 
we, we have one version of the story prior to you deciding to break your silence and a different one since then. I think Copson is an extremely intelligent, brave man. Remember, he was a very senior police officer. He was at the heart of decision-making in the Met for his whole career. Um, I first met him years ago when he... I was carrying out the review that I mentioned for the Home Office, mm. and at first he wasn't at all sure that I was one of the good guys, and he held back... Um, quite suspicious about who or what my motives were. Once he yes. had satisfied himself with that, he was an honest, straightforward policeman. Now, the thing that makes him separate in this case is that he was a part of the review team and the team that set this whole thing up in the first place that brought me into it. And so that when I suggested you need another opinion as well as just mine, because by this time... This case had become so huge in the United Kingdom beyond anything that I'd come across apart from the West case and the Bulger case. It was massive. And I'm not used to that. I, I prefer things to be done quietly. But anyway, I thought it was very important that they had additional opinions. And so the police were able to go out and get two other opinions, one from the FBI and they all, the FBI and the other psychological opinion in the UK, confirmed exactly what I had said. And I think that helped Copson to, to look at what he knew. And remember, he was present when many of the things that I had said happened. And mm -hmm. he, I think he stuck his head above the parapet because he then had to tell the truth. And he did. Isn't that a nominative determinism name, Copson? And, and he was a policeman. You know, uh, it's just fascinating. I could talk to you all day, Prof. And, and I, I think that you probably have stories about those other mur murders that you just mentioned now. You know, the Bulger case, which was such a famous case, not only in, in Britain, but all over the world. I mean, I remember endless TV coverage about that. But I know your time is limited. I really appreciate you being on our show. And I appreciate you telling us a part of the story. I can't wait for the special. OK, can I leave you with just one thing? Please remember that this case and those other cases are not about me. They are about mm. all people who were killed and the families that have been left in grief for all these years. Please. Don't well, absolutely. And, 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 and I don't think it, it strikes anyone as, as incidental that uh, someone like you is interested in doing the best job you can. And. Part of that is obviously telling your story now, just to, to, to try and fill in the, the blanks wherever people have got information that was obviously wrong, either because the media wanted them to get it wrong or because they portrayed people as being X, Y, or Z. And obviously these, you know, these real life people, uh, have, have obviously they've gone forever. And the, the only people who can tell these stories with any, uh, credibility are, are people like you. So I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's been uncomfortable over the years, but I'm, thank you. I'm sure. I'm sure. Thank you so much, Professor.